Investing in your business can be a wonderful way to grow wealth and live the life you want. That's what I'm doing. But investing in someone else's business can be even better. In my opinion, this is the best way to generate true passive income streams. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including the Global Cashflow Kings ETF, ticker symbol CFLO, which lets you invest in 200 companies with high levels of free cash flow, such as Visa and Costco, in one ETF. You can learn more about CFLO and the BetaShares fund range by visiting betashares.com.au. Read the PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Welcome to RASC's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. Jody Stanton is the co-founder and CEO of Rush Gold, or just Rush for short. Rush allows investors and people who are interested in gold to transact in it with a direct line of ownership to the gold in a vault. This is a fintech business that has customers right around the world. In this podcast, Jody and I discuss her journey and the story of how she was super entrepreneurial from a young age. She started multiple businesses before she was 21. Jody holds an MBA from Yale University and has studied or worked right around the world in things like venture capital, investment banking, and consulting. Jody and I talk about her journey and how Cycling 45,000 kilometers around the world gave her a new perspective on what it means to be happy with money and how to make the most of what you've got and do things like limit what you put back in the ground in terms of landfill and your environmental impact. This is a fantastic conversation about gold, its relationship with investment markets, why it goes up, why it goes down, and how Jody and her team at Rush sought to break down the barriers and allow anyone to have a direct title on gold and actually pay for things in their everyday life using the gold that they own. It's quite a wide-ranging conversation as it appears both on our Australian Business Podcast and our Australian Investors Podcast. To keep the conversation off, I asked Jodie a question that relates to her answer to a previous question. In another interview, Jodie was asked, if you had to invest in one thing for 10 years... What would it be and why? Jody said she would invest in an unlisted organic farm. And that is the one thing that she would invest in. Here's her answer to that question. Well, the key question is you have to hold for 10 years, right? So that, that drove. So look, we're, our planet is exploding um, in terms of population. We've gone from six to eight billion in the last 25 years. The next 25 years, we're going to be at 10. So I, I think one of the biggest problems we face is feeding ourselves over the next century. Um, and the more chemicals we put in our food and the more that we genetically modify, I think um, 
the organic nature of food is is more precious every year. Um, at least at least it is for me. And so I think for for me to own a you know a healthy organic farm um, is going to be uh, of high value moving forward. Now, why though private versus a public company? Again, it goes back to the the, the nature of the question being long term, ten years, and um, if you have to hold a company for the long term, you want that company to address the long term um, you know value gain, and in the listed company you have um, you know the risk of the markets right now um, you know the entire market is down and on top of that you have very much short-term goals you have short-term profit um, in, in, uh, milestones mm. you think very differently I think um, you know po politics are very similar right you're in a period of you're in there for a period of time and um, and you know you you won't be there in ten years time. So you make decisions that reflect that. And I think you know CEOs of listed companies make decisions to reflect that as well. Mm -hmm. And that can get in the way of of, of a truly sustainable long term company sometimes, and ma many many times. Mm, I, that alignment of incentives is so important. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's no secret now how big private markets have become from a funding perspective. Maybe partly to solve that that challenge for a lot of business owners and, and, and management teams that do indeed want to think long-term, but can't for all of the reasons you just laid out. Yeah. And, and it's very close to home to the uh, organic farm. I remember when I was growing up, my mum would only ever feed me organic uh, food for that very reason. Um, maybe she was ahead of her time. I'm over 30 now I can say. So it was quite some time ago, but, um, Jody, I, I do have another question that relates to something that you answered in the past, and that is, um, I heard someone once say that privacy is an illusion in our modern world, and it's this idea that, you know, we've heard of all these breaches and hacks and identity theft and things just in the last year here in Australia. This is going on for a very long time. I think the key thing is for me, those are the ones that we know about. Those are the few that we know about. You know, why would a company self-report things if they didn't have to, right? So I'm curious to understand the greatest threat or threats that you see from technology. Well, there are two as I see them. One is the lack of local community. Um, you can get every, you know, I, I used to call my mother for a recipe. Now I look it up on Pinterest. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I have my iPad in my kitchen ready to go. Um, how to get a, a stain, a you know, red wine stain out of a, a of a white shirt? You know, I used to call my mom, but I don't need to. And um, and I think that uh, sense of local community and 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 I've spent, you know, you go to small towns in Europe, there still is that community. You you find nine year olds riding their ninety nine zero um, year olds riding their bicycles around, visiting each other. Um, in Turkey, everyone's sitting there drinking chai. And uh, the old men are, you know, sit there all afternoon. And I, and I think, you know, if I look down on the street right now, everybody's just staring at their phone, right? And nobody really needs that um, that information share. But we sure need the connection. And I think that's a real pity. Mm -hmm. The other one is privacy, as you say, right? No, no surprise there. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you look at um, cryptocurrencies and how excited everyone is and the thought of removing the middleman and being able to transact direct peer-to-peer -peer outside of the banking system. And that's all wonderful. 
Um, but blockchain itself, could it be that the private sector has just subsidized one of the greatest control vehicles that we've known in our lifetime? And governments, you know, if they could now move us to an entirely cashless community with, um, you know, being able to track and tax every transaction that we do and we're and we're you know progressing that in cryptocurrencies and so there's a lot of good about cryptocurrencies too but i think on the topic of privacy i i, I think you can be careful what you wish for I think. Mm. that's fascinating because i mean i won't get into the the politics or the the belief system around some of the blockchain technology but um i think that would probably be the opposite of what people Tell me. That's the irony. Yeah. That's the irony. It's the trustless system and we can do everything on our own. Um, um, but I think, you know, regulation will come in and, and, and governments need the right to tax, mm. right? They need the right to tax. That's how um, uh, nations are run. And so they will fight tooth and nail to make sure that happens. And if that's, you know, transactions are moving outside of the financial system, they're going to make sure that they're part of that. Mm. Uh, and, and hence... Uh, and they make the rules. Um, so it's, it's it's a tricky one. It's a complex one and probably can go well beyond the scope of this discussion. But yeah, we could be here. Yeah, we could be all here year. all day. But <laughs> I, I, um, there's a, it's, it's a very complex matter and very complex technology and where this could all go. Uh, on one hand, it's very exciting. And on one hand, uh, on the other hand, it, it, it scares me to death where, mm. where it could go. Interesting. So. I hadn't thought of that perspective. So that's really interesting. We might come back to that. But um, your background is very varied so <laughs> you've like you're saying off air before when you came to australia and i've heard um different uh, interviews with you in the past and uh, you've spoken about going around the world and doing all sorts of things and investment and financial services from investment banking and venture capital and now you know you have rush um but i'm curious given your career i thought i'd maybe break it down to just a a pretty simple question, which is, which of the experiences stand out to you as having an, an impact on the way you either invest or the way you run a business today or both? I, I'd love to give you a simple answer to that, <laughs> Owen, but I, I, the answer really is everything together. They're all correlated. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll break it down though. I think, you know, I, I've, the way I think I think about it in my own mind is that I've I've benefited from transacting at the top end of town, and at the bottom end of town, the smaller end of town. Um, and so, yes, I have uh, you know experience. I was a financial engineer on Wall Street. I was an actuary in insurance companies. I um, you know I learned how to do things professionally. I was consultant for um, a consulting firm, and I learned how to. Um, you know, do project finance by um, putting together a detailed business plan. Um, I learned how to do NPV. I learned about the time value of money. I learned about the professional um, governance, uh, risk management and setting up committees. Um, I don't know, you know, matching assets and liabilities. And and doing all that in a team environment and in uh, under a, uh, an overlay of, you know, compliance and legal and, and, and all of that. Now, um, and... At the same time, I've been an entrepreneur for many years. So when I was, I think I was 13 when I started making teddy bears and selling at school, which turned into an upholstery, I used to reupholster deck furniture and design, you know, uh, um, 
porches and sunrooms for for homes. Um, I think I was doing that when I was 15. I was by 18. I was I had a uh, I was making wedding gowns. Um, uh, then I went. I made tents and sleeping bags. I, I, I wow. made and sold whatever I could and taught myself everything along the way. And yes, all that was you know I put a business plan together to 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 even travel um, and, and raise some money for that. Um, I started a whitewater raft company when I was 21 and sold that. So I um, I've done a lot of things um, and uh, learned so much along the way. And I think um, I think that having that balance. And having that both ends of town is put together is probably my biggest sort of um, my biggest education because I think if you did just did one you know if you just deal in the small end of town you don't think big and if you just operate in the big end of town um, you don't really know how to be resourceful and roll your sleeves up and just get things done and you know everyone in our business puts paper in the copy copy machine when it's empty it's it's nobody's um pigeon hold into a particular role so we all do everything and it's a very flat organization and so everyone is very resourceful so I, I i think it is both i think it is both but i've also um you know if you think of venture capital i spent time in venture capital both the u.s and australia and i think you learn a lot what goes wrong mm-hmm. um you know i am and certainly a uh from 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 my Wall Street days, certainly a, a um, student of Charlie Munger's mental models, hundreds of them, you know. And at one point, I was taught to learn them all. And and um, so I I think it's it's just that collection. Um, the wisdom of crowds is another one. Uh, the learning the importance of wisdom of crowds. I mean, you can put together a team of experts on a matter and get to an answer that is not as good as getting to an answer by putting people from varied experiences, you know, assuming they're all non-correlated, right? And so you have someone who was a former CEO of HSBC, but you also have someone who makes bridal gowns, right? And, yeah. and to pull in that together and, and get to an investment decision based on everybody's collective anecdotal experience. And I think that's really powerful and, and, and to make sure everybody's heard because everybody has a viewpoint that could make, make you money, you know, in, in, in the topic of, of investing here, everybody has a viewpoint or an experience that could help make you money in a way that you hadn't thought of before. So, so I think it's, it's, it's that, it's just that balance of, you know, the big and the small end of town. And I guess that, that, uh, the, it's, it's unique, I think, in, in some ways. So, Absolutely. Becoming less unique, by the way. But, you know, I mean, my, my, my father ended up, um, he, he spent 36 years in the same job, right? So those days are gone. And when I was, uh, I spent some time last week with a senior executive, one of the, the major banks here, um, one afternoon last week. And his comment was, there's nobody, all the good young people are going into technology, going into engineering. They're not going up through the financial institutions like they used to. So there's not that talent. The talent is not coming up through some of those institutions like they did before. Um, And I think that's changing the landscape of the financial system Mm. greatly. Mm. Maybe a place to your advantage, though. I think so. (laughs) I think so. Um, In a previous interview, you mentioned... um, Something where you said you felt partly responsible. Now, I wasn't 100% sure of the context around this. 
Actually, and before I get to this question, I am quite amazed that you said all of those things that you did before 21. Um, <laughs> <laughs> people would probably be happy with that over a lot of Well, I'm only 23 time. now. Yeah, so, that's it. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I just thought that, that's incredible. But um, yeah, you said in the previous discussion that you felt partly responsible. And I think this was around the collapse of long-term capital management, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so are you able to talk about the impact that that had on you? Um, look, the I, I was I was at the time in risk management in a boutique risk management firm in on Wall Street, and with plans to stay in Wall Street for a period of time. And um, I, I think that, along with a few other things um, that happened, that I a few other decisions that I made at the time. I've decided, that's when I decided, quite frankly, to come to Australia. All right. So um, it wasn't long-term capital explicitly. However, I was, you know, going to dinners in a town car on, you know, every Thursday in the trade towers and listening to some of these guys. Um, I won't list names, but they're household names you can talk about. And, and, and we all, everyone's patting themselves on the back. I was a youngster at the time. But um, there's a lot of money floating around. Um, and this is at the end of the, the, the booms or in the bull markets, right? So the tail end of it. But still, it was, um, I think, even the godfathers of financial engineering derivatives um, who you know, were behind long-term capital, even, even they did not quite anticipate the domino effect that they had on some of their um, investment decisions. And I think we just all felt that the financial system was, was solid, right? And I think when I say I was responsible, I certainly am not taking the fall of long-term capital, but um, but I think as, as a little puncher back then, but I think it made me think really hard about what I wanted to do for a living. And I, and I think, you know, as, as investors, as entrepreneurs, I think we all have great power in how we spend our time and our resources. Mm-hmm. And back then I, I looked at what I was doing and, and, you know, I was going to court and we were um, talking about a, a particular trade. I, we had to develop a view on whether the trade was a reverse repo, a double interest rate swap, who was going to write who a check? Was it Goldman Sachs that was out a half a billion dollars or was it JP Morgan? Who and, and and people didn't know. And the fact that they didn't know was horrifying. It was horrifying because you had, you know, millions of people in middle America with 401ks that, you know, their decision was a big deal. And 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 this all unraveled. And so when I say I was I was doing what led to the GFC, I was in that sector, mm-hmm. I suppose. And that was um, when I looked at where I would be heading and how much money I could be making, you know, and that's why, I, yes, I took a pretty big pay cut when I came to Australia and left finance and left Wall Street, but um, I think I did it for the right reasons. And um, um, I just didn't want to be a part of that mm-hmm. game anymore, um, gambling with people's money. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I do have a, um, um, Propensity to uh, for for um, ad- adventure sports, I suppose. <laughs> Hence the white water rafting. Oh, <laughs> uh, and a few other things, right? So, um, yes, I, I my my biggest hobby for a long time was was mountain climbing. So I was um, I grew up ice climbing, and that was my thing. Instead of skiing, we were always ice climbing. So, so I, I knew doc, you know I, I 
went to see quite a few doctors uh, because of that. Um, and um, I remember starting out that doctors knew everything. And then my brother became a doctor and then my, you know, a few more family members became doctors. And I looked around, I'm like, well, hold on, that's just my brother, right? He doesn't know everything. <laughs> and so I kind of learned the hard way that, and, and then I had a, a doctor literally make a mistake in a surgery that I had. And so I learned that um, they don't know everything and they're not infallible. Mm. When I was at Wall Street, um, as a witness to some of this that was going on and from the inside out, quite frankly, with um, it was a big lesson to learn that the financial system isn't infallible either. And the minute I learned that was like, it changed my life. You know, the financial system is not infallible. It can fail. When you hold money in a bank, there is an external party that guarantees, right, um, $250,000, but it is a claim. They, they have, it's a promise for them to pay you that back when you need it but it's actually not your money anymore. And learning those concepts, learning the time value of money, that you're, you know, in my lifetime, the, the dollar has lost 80% of its purchasing power. So due to inflation. And those concepts were not lost on me and I, they, they hit me like a ton of bricks. And, and so, yeah, I left Wall Street. I didn't want to be a part of that. Um, and uh, I think I've walked away with some pretty big lessons that, gee, look around, you need to, um, we need to be careful here. We need to be careful. We're messing with with our livelihood globally. Did you? I'm going to follow up on this. Did you? Did you think because you had studied actuarial science and gone into that field that you thought like because that is often held as like the pinnacle in terms of financial mathematics or financial engineering? Did you think well maybe this is like the medicine of finance, right? And I thought they Very would nice. have the answers. Is exactly. that what you thought? That's that's the parallel. I was. Um, I, I saw certainly between, you know, the medical profession and learning that it's they're not infallible, and the financial system equally is not infallible, mm. and um, I they were parallels in my own mind at a very young age, and um, I, and I guess I've never looked back. I think um, where it really struck home is when I left Wall Street mm. as a result of this and jumped on a lifelong dream. I wanted to ride my bike around the globe. And so I wrote a business plan, got Trek to sponsor and a few others to sponsor my trip. And oh, wow. Yeah. And so I spent a year in business plan mode, uh, 10 hours a day, every day for 18 months. And um, it wasn't a holiday. It was a, it was a goal. It was a quest. And, um, you know, 18 months I, I, I ended back um, in the States and in so doing, though, I guess, you know, I talked about the top end of town and the bottom end of town. Now I'll just say now I have experience through that bicycle trip for 18 months at the tiny end of town, at the unfortunate, at the poverty end of town. It's a whole other level down, and it's where most of the world lives. And um, for me, there was a correlation. You know, I'm going off track here, but there was a real correlation with wealth and gratitude and, mm. you know, going back to Wall Street after this bicycle trip, I was, you know, it's truly, I said no more, right? It's not for me. And people were gracious and generous and, um, you know, eating dalba in the dark, in the dirt after, you know, riding through the foothills of the Himalayas. And, and people who had nothing would give you their last clean water for the day, right? Um, and then you go back to Wall Street and it's, mm. you know, 
eight, eight, eight um, martinis lined up um, because they'd order so, ordered so many and they're passed out on the table. You know, I've, I've been there. I've watched that happen. And um, no sense of, you just have to hit them and try to get their credit card out of their pocket at the end of the day. Uh, this is a banker, right, mm. that took us to dinner. It's just crazy stuff that went on back in the day. And for me, um, you know, there's a wealth gap and it's growing. And what do we do about it? And so going back to that comment about where we have a lot of power in how we spend our time and our resources, for me, it's it's like I wanted to be on the asset side of the balance sheet after that. I wanted to put an asset in the hands of people who didn't have an asset. And we started out thinking we could do that en masse um, outside of the banking system and even outside of um, even outside of cash. So how do we how do we approach that? Well, what we learned is that we cannot build a business being altruistic forever. You have to make a profit, right? And so we um, in, in in our business now is is very much a high net worth product, but it is accessible to every. You can buy one dollar of gold, right? So so for us, um, but it's that wealth gap. It's about operating in the asset side rather than the debt. I mean, you can get debt everywhere. There's been fintechs all around the world who have made a boatload of money through the debt side of the balance sheet. But we were adamant we wanted to do build an asset. You know, it's that back to that organic farm. Let's go to something real. Let's and and let's get rid of counterparty risk. Let's get rid of. We have GFC Mark II. Um, we did have COVID, but you know, every time we're in a crisis, we print more money. Every time we print more money, we devalue our money. Every time you devalue money, you have to look around for something that is going to hold its value. And that's where, you know, we got to gold because it, it it does just that. Mm. There, I mean, there's so many things that I could pull out of that. Um, so if I'm not mistaken, it was around about 2016 that you decided to launch Rush, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and originally, if I'm not mistaken, it was called Send Gold. Was that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, this this origin story of a business is actually some of. It sounds like you laid you did lay the foundations for us just fantastically right there. But what just what made you want to like what prompted you to be like okay I'm going to do something about it? That's kind of like my first thing. But the second yeah. thing is like how did you initially go about it? So you mentioned you need something that's real. Then how did you join the dots to, I'm the one to do this and here's how I'm going to do it? Well, um, I was in venture capital at the time and I was seeing a lot in the space of blockchain. That's how it started, quite frankly. And so, um, so this concept of wanting to not follow everyone else and go down and do something on the debt side and and yes, as an entrepreneur, you obviously I've done a few different things. I, you know, entrepreneurs are always thinking and trying to figure out what what are the problems, how, how can you solve it. Um, but for me, it was really about the you know initially about the wealth gap because um, you know the top end of town knows how to buy gold. They know how to buy any asset they want, right? It's 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 me who needs help, right? It's 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 um, it's those of us who don't have um, a whole office of people investing my, my money. Right. And so um, so we looked at it in that regard. And um, blockchain was really interesting because we said, okay, there's demand for um, 
a vehicle to transfer money offshore. There is a vehicle for peer-to-peer transfer um, that is maybe may or may not be known to someone else um, that may or may not initially may or may not be taxed, right? Um, something that's completely outside the banking system, something that settles instantly cross-border. Bitcoin did all of these things and more. So for me, someone who studied cryptography, um, someone who spent their career in financial services and technology, all my Christmases came at once. And I said, this is really cool. Uh, and started looking at Bitcoin in particular. So I, I met many miners. Um, now, Bitcoin copied what you know, the scarcity, tried to copy, is copying the scarcity of gold, for example, in that the mining process mimics mining gold. It's, you know, most of the mine, most of the gold is, is already mined. Um, and it is, um, you know, hard to store and, and um, audit and capture and um, access and all of those things. Um, and getting harder and harder to mine over time, such as Bitcoin. So I was the one buying Bitcoin with $30,000 at a time in brown paper bags. And I would um, meet someone at a cafe and they'd say, okay, I'm, I'm the guy with a yellow DHL bag on, on, the, on the table. Just come by and leave your money and I'll, I'll transfer you the Bitcoin. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't know who you normally sell Bitcoin to, but I'm on the up and up here. Let, let's sit down and I want to learn everything that you know. And so this is what I did for a year. We also, um, our first opportunity we thought we would um, develop is a, would build is a, is a crypto exchange. And then we realized that by developing a crypto exchange, you are actually um, making redundant the entire um, decentralized component of, mm. of, of Bitcoin or blockchain. And it's in, in itself, in, 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 at the core, it is about a decentralized finance system. And by um, setting up a, an exchange, you're you're actually putting a middleman in the middle again and, and, mm. and wiping the whole concept out. So it's a bit redundant. So we didn't do that. And then we said, okay, let's keep all the things that we really like about Bitcoin and let's fix all the things that we don't like about Bitcoin and see what we come up with. And initially we did a basket of assets that would maintain global purchasing power in the next GFC Mark II, but we ended up with gold. And because gold, you can actually buy direct title. Counterparty risk will continue to be a problem over time, right? With an ETF, you don't you own a share in a fund, you don't own the gold directly. And so if something happens like MF Global, you ended up getting 70 cents on the dollar um, when they went bankrupt. So there is that counterparty risk. So we said, okay, but if you directly own title to the gold, you do not own a share or a fund, you own the gold, the underlying gold. And with that, what can we do with it? And so, and so that's how we ended up with, uh, we called it Send Gold because we were having a conversation and we wrote it, you know, speaking about writing something on a napkin. Mm. We just said, okay, here it is. And we did the logo and, and then we said, let's just see if it has any legs. We didn't spend any more time on branding and, you know. Build the product. We build the product. And then we became the first guys to um, be able to sell gold real time when you spend your through MasterCard. So um, with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay, you can add Rush to your wallet and you can actually spend gold real time. And at which time we're actually doing a trade on your behalf in the background. So we are, I believe, 
could still be the only ones, but we're certainly the first to to um, be able to spend gold from from those major mobile wallets. Um, and in so doing, at that point, we changed our name to Rush um, Rush Gold, and now uh, and now we're about to launch another asset, um, which I'll talk about another time. But mm. but we're changing it to Rush. It's it's just in short Rush. Yeah, yeah right. So okay, so here's my version of what you just said and then you tell me what you would say if someone came up to you at a barbecue or a cocktail party but it seems to me that someone could use the rush app to store gold that they have direct title to they could send it or receive it kind of like you would with a blockchain wallet or something like that um but you can also just hold it or you can pay with it so you could because of the link with mastercard you could go to the coffee shop and pay for your cappuccino with a knowing that it's backed by gold is that correct how do you describe it look i I think you know um oxford economics is they did a a a recent um report where they said okay how much gold should you hold and it's they said somewhere between 10 and 15 and i'll touch on that again later but um if that's the case and you look around you say okay well um I've got a $100,000 portfolio. I want between ten dollars and $15,000 worth of gold. Where do I buy that? Do I even know how? It, Rush is simply an easy way to buy direct title to gold with no counterparty um, on an app in a few minutes, right? You have to go through AML, um, uh, KYC. You have to go through an onboarding process. But now once you have direct title, so we're a premium product to an ETF. So if you think of an ETF, you do not own the gold. So it's a premium product to an ETF, but at the same time, it's lower cost. So ETF has holding costs every every um, year. Uh, they have brokerage fees as well, but over time, um, those annual fees add up because they're paying all the middlemen, right? Mm-hmm. The middlemen have to make money. So you've got um, custodian, you've got sub custodians, and so they must be paid. Now, um, so once you have uh, the premium product, you have direct title to gold, you can do many things with it. I can buy it, I can hold it, I can sell it, I can send it as a gift. Um, we're opening up gift registries. Um, so you could you could say, I'm getting married. Um, here's my son's birthday. We're opening youth accounts. So there's a lot that you can do with the gold now and, and more so in the coming year that um, you just can't do with a dumb bar and a vault, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so very simply put, um, you can buy it simply, um, quickly, and transfer it and spend it. You can open up a MasterCard, it's direct debit, and uh, add it to your Apple wallet and and, uh, away you go. So it's got the utility and it's got the 24 seven liquidity. And that's unique in the market and pretty exciting to people who get the value of direct title. So I've got a lot of questions around this, but the first is, um, what does direct title actually mean? So does that mean that you link the user of Rush directly to something in a vault? Is that how, is that what it means? Correct. So um, you don't own it through a fund. You don't own it through, so there's different ways to own um, exposure to the gold price. Um, An ETF clearly is one of them, but as I made mention, you don't own the gold, right? Someone else does. And, And maybe many people do between you and the gold. And in the case of an ETF, it may be 100% backed by gold, it may be 60% backed by gold. So ETFs were great because it, it solved for 
the ability, you have to insure, you have to audit it, you have to do all of these things for gold. You have to store it in a vault, men with guns, maybe in women, I don't know, but it's, it's, there's a lot to do when you have talking about physical gold rather than paper. Someone has to kind of pay for that, right? So it, it does get tricky. ETFs say, okay, well, we don't want to mess with all that, but what we've done is kind of the next evolution of an ETF in some regards, in that you do have direct title, but you don't have all of those things that you need to do. So we, we store in Sydney and Brisbane vaults. Um, we're insured, your gold is insured by Lloyds of London, um, physically audited by Bureau of Veritas. And um, we don't yet allow you to come and see your gold unless you own over a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 you are the difference between allocated and unallocated gold is that um, unallocated gold, You basically someone owes you the price of gold, whereas allocated gold, which is what we sell, you own the gold directly. So we can identify exactly what you own at any given time. So it's a long-winded answer, but there's a lot of elements to no, it. No, that makes sense. But bottom line is I can tell you what gold you own. And how do – I mean, I know because I've done some prep for this interview, but how does the fee structure work? So someone that buys – gold through you versus, we know with an ETF with this holding costs and this brokerage costs as well. How does it work with Rush? Um, we have a um, 1% transaction fee, which is like a brokerage cost capped at $90. So um, if you're buying um, you know, $1,000 worth of gold, you're, it, it'll be 1%. But if you're buying a, you know, a, a larger amount of gold, um, then it is capped at that $90. So Depending on how much you want to buy, um, it's a pretty low, pretty low. becomes a pretty low fee very quickly. Mm. Um, that 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 one percent is capped. Um, Do you find most people buy to hold? Absolutely, absolutely, and that's where those ongoing holding fees can, say, can yeah. add up, right? Yeah. So um, you know, fifteen years out, you're talking ten times the, the the price. Read the prospectus. I mean, there's lots. You know, I'm not saying you should and gold one way or the other but if you are going to any financial product you know you need to read the prospectus because i think people forget or don't appreciate that these fees add up over time um and what seems like a good deal going in is maybe not after a couple of years so if you are buying to hold you need to look at those ongoing costs for sure um okay so and just to confirm with the the mastercard so you could effectively could you go overseas with it? Yes. Any, anywhere in the world that MasterCard is accepted. Right. Because I, th- I think it was, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was you, Jody, you said that in a previous discussion, you said something like the purchasing power is one of the greatest risks that people don't actually pay attention to. Right. And is And when I got to know you and we exchanged some emails and what have you, I started to think about this a bit more in that, this idea of like purchasing power and gold holding its value versus cash in the bank. I don't know if you can see where I'm going. It's kind of like off the off the reserve here a bit. Well, but. again, in my lifetime, we've lost 80% of our value of the dollar. Okay. Mm. Uh, and um, that's probably your lifetime too, or somewhere in the middle of it. <laughs> um, um, my lifetime is far l- longer than yours. But I, I think that's um, uh, through inflation. The, the dollar does not hold its value. It's just that basic concept of the time value of money. It's worth less you know, you can 
pick up an old, old, old restaurant mm-hmm. menu and find, you know, a cup of coffee was 20 cents, right? So, well, it's six bucks today, at least the one I drink. So, you know, that that's, you know, that's what's happening with our money. It's, it's you now, if you look at gold, um, it cost a certain amount of gold to buy a suit back in the days of the pharaohs. It costs the same amount of gold to buy a suit today, exact same weight of gold. Um, the price of gold is very much dictated by our confidence in the financial system. And um, I think over time, we worry about that and the stability of the financial system, which you know I've touched on. And um, there's a lot of things that impact the price of gold, but bottom line is it all impacts the price of gold. And and so if you look at gold, gold is an all time high, all time high right now, um, and yet it's when gold hits that two thousand dollar US mark, it's going to blow through it and become that will become a floor like like any asset, right? It's it's hitting its head as a ceiling right now, but it will become the floor. It has gone over two thousand quite a bit in the last few weeks, uh, and and the, the the bigger banks are expecting it to to blow that away in in, in the coming months and. In years, um, I'm not going to comment too much on the price of gold. I know that mm. I buy it whenever it dips. Um, mm. But um, but you know, when I was 18, I bought Berth- Berkshire Hathaway and gold, and I never looked back. They both served me really well as a bedrock foundation for my portfolio, and I've I've never sold either one. Really, yeah. you bought Berkshire alongside gold, which is quite yeah. quite an interesting one because well, I knew he wasn't going to Warren Buffett's not going to buy gold, right? Yeah, so, that's it. Well, that's although true. he did, although he did, yeah, yeah, he, he, did. he bought the if I'm not mistaken, Barrick Gold. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So because this is going to air on our business podcast as well, I do have a couple of questions about the business yeah. side of Rush, and there are two parts to this. The one is like, what were the technical hurdles you had to overcome to build something like this? Because you're matching a physical asset with like a financial technology company and financial services. So it's kind of blending it all together. So I'm curious, what were the kind of the big rocks that you had to do? Um, one of the first things I asked the, the Rush team was um, like, what's the regulatory environment like? How are you guys, you know, audited checks and balances and all that? And uh, I've since discovered there's many hurdles you had to overcome there. So I'm curious how you would comment on that. Well, it hasn't been, uh, it's not a, an MVP was probably on steroids. So there's a lot we had to pull together. I think um, like like any modern day business, technology is never the hard part, you know. Um, um, technology is, you know, less and less a barrier every day. So what we, we very much looked at the buy versus build. So the first number one thing we did is we said, okay, let's look at buy versus build. And how much of this do we really want to own as an asset and how much do we need to plug in? So we took, uh, we, we have taken a open API platform approach to what we do. And with that, we can, we've grown now to multi-asset. So self-managed super funds, businesses, and now youth, um, not youth today, but new youth about to come out and, um, multi-asset we're about to launch a new asset. It was really easily done. Um, we have, um, couple different channels to market um, which you know we can talk about that in a minute but they um, we have we very much took a platform approach which means we can scale quite a bit quickly easily 
when and if you know the time is right for to to turn these all on. So that's that's the. But we also built on other people's shoulders. Like we we plugged in um, the components that we felt were commodity, and um, so we have an underlying bank grade mobile bank grade system under our platform. We didn't go and build that. Someone else did for about a hundred million dollars. Mm. We negotiated a, an amazing partnership with them and 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 we're off and running. So we we were very decisive about what we built versus you know respecting that um uh you have to stick to your knitting and you have to know what you want to spend your time and resources on. So for us our our team is fairly senior and we're in technology um and we're in uh, financial services. So we took a very much a non-technology approach to what we're doing. Uh, we do have two Australian financial services licenses. We are fully AML compliant. We've had two independent audits for AML um, successful over the last few years. We um, so we punch above our weight. We're not required to do all of that. We um, we have a really good fraud system. We have um, I think our fraud losses are 0.00074 percent of our transaction volume. Wow, that's incredible. It is. Um, uh, so we've, we've, we've built our MVP, if you will, you know, with the sledgehammer, so to speak. So we're ready, we're ready to, to rock and roll. Um, um, the challenges were really about constantly being best in breed in everything we did, because to do, you know, to, to, to allow for Apple to allow us on their platform, you have to tick a lot of boxes. You had to go through a lot of hoops, but because we'd already done that with PayPal, you know, we opened up a nine, you know, we, we, we can operate 90 currencies with PayPal. They were our first um, banking partner. Um, so there are a lot of things that we did right from the start, which made the rest of it a little bit easier. Um, AML, for example, with a sledgehammer approach, we, we have a, a private letter from them um, around what we're doing. We wanted to make sure that, you know, they didn't change the laws and come back and haunt us later. Um, because we deal with direct title, there's, that opens up a lot of doors for us, to be honest. We're not a security. And so that's a really important distinction. Um, so, and, um, so I think there's just, there's always another challenge. There always, there's, you can always do better. You can always, there's always new opportunities. There's always um, customers that introduce new ideas um, and ask for new things. Um, but I think we've we've maintained. I mean, our directors answer. We have a VIP service, right? So our directors manage that, myself mm -hmm. included. So we are still very much about um, solving people's real problems, mm -hmm. and um, rather than just let the technology do it themselves. So we're we're quite an evolving company, if you will, and we've got more work ahead of us than behind us, but. Um, we've got a platform that is highly, highly scalable. We've got customers in 15 countries. We have, um, I made mention that we have two channels to market. We do, we have an app, um, but we also have, you know, a channel where we can embed go our, our service into third-party channels. So yeah. a bank or a wealth manager. And so we've got some pretty interesting projects um, around the globe. Some we've plugged in and are operating. Um, some... Um, we're in the progress of of, of, of signing and, and developing, um, so we have a we have a nice pipeline of, of third parties who want to. Because that's really interesting that um, because I heard a kind of it's a bit of a buzzword play gold as a service, but it it really was interesting to me. So you built it so that your core platform 
can plug into like a rewards program or a gifts and whatever. Yeah, so I, 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 I hate to use the word bank, but if you think of us as an open API bank, but with gold, that's, you know, that, that, that describes that, I think. So we're able to um, plug and play pretty quickly, particularly because we're not a security. And we tick all the boxes with compliance. Um, so if a wealth manager wanted to sell direct title to gold, right now, oh, as a wealth manager, they don't make fees from someone that goes to a, you know, somewhere and buys gold, right? They, that's out of their jurisdiction, so to speak. Um, but if they plug our gold in, they can then you know, be a part of that. And, and add that gold to their overall portfolio in a way that they've not been able to do before. Yeah. Um, and so, and particularly that's interesting offshore. We've had a lot of interest offshore, inbound interest. We don't even market it. So it, it comes to us. Yeah. And we've got a really big Middle East project going on right now. Um, um, it's not launched, but we're, we're very excited about that. So, mm. but, it, but, it, but, you know, zero acquisition costs for us from a business perspective. So it's very exciting. I'd like to shift gears now from like kind of the built and the the platform that you manage to gold as like the kind of the asset class that I know a lot of our listeners will be thinking about, right? Is like if they do have that 10%, 15%, whatever they've got, 5% in their portfolios, they'll be thinking about this, right? They'll be thinking, well, how can I, how can I think about getting exposure? Um, how much and so on and so forth. But you mentioned before that there are multiple variables that do drive the gold price. But I'm curious because it also ties in with this idea of so much money in circulation these days. Would it be fair to say, or like, would it be fair to say, or how would you think about this if I said that the so the US dollar, so the greenback, the reserve currency drives a lot of what we see in the gold price. Would that be a fair statement, do you think, or would you disagree, or is there nuance there? Yes, but it's bigger than that. It, it is bigger than that. So gold plays such a big part. Um, you know, Warren Buffett says, oh, but it's, it doesn't do a lot of things. It's not a company. It's not solving a problem. But I, I think we would argue that it does solve a problem. Um, it does solve, you know, purchasing power. It hedges inflation. It does those sort of things. Also, 40, 45%... It's a 13.8 US dollar um, trillion a year market. And 45% of that is through demand in jewelry. So they also use it in semiconductors. And so they, gold is in the economy, it is moving. Um, but also some of that jewelry is, is you know, women in India who it's, it's, it's an investment as well. So, um, so, what does drive the gold price? It, it, it's confidence in the financial systems, and that's plural. It's not just the U.S. economy, right? And if you, I mean, look at Texas. Texas right now is looking to, um, you know, come up with a, a currency based on gold. They're not alone. I could, I could list them. Um, several of them that are following suit. Some people do argue that um, we should base our global economy on gold. Um, the U.S. dollar used to be pegged to gold, as as you may know, um, and you know we unpegged it. Everyone unpegged it so they could pay for the war, right? So they could print money. In short, you can't print money if it's pegged to gold, right? Because you can't print gold. 
So we've we've unpegged it so that we can print all the money we want. Um, and now they're wondering about should we peg it to to gold again. So um, there are a lot of things that factor into gold, but it is that confidence and stability of, of the financial systems. The central banks around the world are buying up more gold now than they ever have in the history of gold. And um, I think that's saying something. They're, people are starting to be more and more concerned. And if it's not this crisis that takes debt to a level that we can't recover, could be the next one or the one after that. So how, how many crises can we go through one after the other and still continue to print money? Um, and circling back to talking about why I would own an organic farm that is unlisted versus listed, it's because of that short versus long-term, right? Um, there is the short versus long-term fix to to all of this as well. And it's it's complex. It's complex. It's a whole other whole mm. other conversation, I think. But um I was going to ask you a question, which is that like to invert it, like Charlie Munger would say. Uh, and so what would make you change your mind about gold? Like as it as an as an asset class, I guess. Well, um, you know, everybody's trying to mimic the scarcity of gold. Um if if supply is limited, you know, demand increases, the price goes up. It's pretty straight economics. Um, all the gold on the earth today came through an asteroid when an asteroid hit the earth. And if that would happen again and double the amount of gold on the earth, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd change my mind in a heartbeat for sure. Um, so I don't mean to be flippant, but um, if I just think of all the fundamentals, gold's been around for 4,000 years and it's still doing its job. It's it is a defensive asset. It's not an offensive. It's not it's not sexy. It's not. Some people would argue that it is, but really, I mean, it's 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 like what what people's father bought, right? Yeah. Um, um, there are more there's sexier things too, but you can't risk your whole portfolio on, on sexy items, right? Sometimes you've just got to plant and build a foundation for your portfolio, and um, you know gold has served that role for a long time. So so other than an, another asteroid coming in to hit. The planet, uh, um, that's probably the biggest one I would flip pretty quickly. Okay. Um, I've got a few more questions around that defensive part of a portfolio. In a previous interview, you said something like bonds are destroying capital. But, and you, you said there was like a double whammy effect here from some of this that we've seen in recent times. So can you unpack that for us? Well, for the last 30 years, we've been in a deflationary environment, right? And so bonds have created value. The price of bonds have gone up. Now we're in a different market cycle. And none of us know what to do about it for a minute, right? We, we all needed to take a minute and think through this. Now we're in an inflationary environment. And so all you know, there's several models that we've been looking at and making decisions from over the last 30 years that now, that now need to be rethought. Um, and we have to go back further than 30 years to 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 look for advice. And so what's happening now is the bond market, the prices as interest uh, inflation goes up, um, bond prices go down. So there is a double whammy, which I refer to in that bond prices overall are going down in an inflationary environment. And at the same time, when the bond matures, it's worth less because your money is worth less. <laughs> so if it matures at $100, that $100 is now worth you know, $93 because of 7% inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a 60-40 portfolio, you have 
you know, 60% risk, 40%, um, you know, defensive assets and typically bonds and cash. Now, for a lot of people, gold is coming in instead of maybe 5%, maybe they have a 10 or 15% allocation because um, just because of that nature of bonds not quite doing the job that it did for 30 years in the way that it did. And, and so gold is, you know, replacing that defensible asset of, mm. of bonds potentially for for many. I've got a one more, sorry, two more questions, but one of them is around crypto, which you mentioned before, is that, you know the blockchain and what have you. Some people listening to this would say, "Well, Jody, isn't like Bitcoin the future of gold or something like this?" And I don't, I don't know if it's the right question to ask. Is like this or that, or maybe it's this and that? Like, how do you think about this? I own both. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Which I thought you might say, to be honest. <laughs> but I don't transact Bitcoin because uh, I'm a minimalist. I care about the planet. That's just who I am. So for me, you know, I, the, you know, the electricity to do a Bitcoin transaction, you know, haunts me. So I don't. I'm not a Bitcoin trader. Um, but I bought Bitcoin years ago, and I, I'm, I, someday I'll sell it. You know. <laughs> but, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully I'll do all right. So you basically took the best bit. What I think you're saying is you took the best bits of that to build Rush, like that concept. We looked at the concept and said, why is this of interest? Take all the best bits from it, but there's no underlying value, right? I mean, Elon Musk can tweet and the value changes, right? So we know that. So there's no underlying value of Bitcoin per se. Um, you could argue the same for for gold, I suppose, but the volatility is the big difference, right? Volat if everyone says, oh, they're going to change regulation, whereas gold, that's unlikely to ever happen because it's been around for so long and it's well entrenched in everyone's constitution, let alone property rights. I mean, Australia's ranked fourth in the world for property rights strength, if you will. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we we very deliberately set up here a gold company, right? right. In okay. Australia, that's what it's, okay. uh, it's becoming more and more the right answer, by the way, and we're very happy to be here, um, even though it's a very, very small market for us, um, and we have a lot of work to do to take this offshore, but um, it's the right place to be domiciled for, for what we do. Bitcoin and, and gold are very, 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 very different in my in my mind. For me, um, they, they just occupy a very different place in my portfolio. Gold is defensive. It, it maintains my purchasing power. When I make money from crypto, if I did trade, I would put it more into gold. I'd need to park it somewhere, right? And we have, we're working with a couple of pretty impressive um, um, decentralized finance professionals um, that uh, we're working with uh, the synthetics guys that really around the next big problem to solve. I'm going to take a little bit of a side track mm -hmm. here and get back to your question, but the, the, the really big thing to solve with blockchain in our industry is that proof of quality, quantity, and location provenance, and to be able to prove that. Now, it's not as easy as it may sound. If you really think through that, that's a really hard thing to do because with a physical asset, you always have the centralized management of that physical asset. And you always have someone entering data. And if you're going to use blockchain, someone. And so today we haven't used blockchain. We haven't needed it. We've we've stuck with the bank grade systems, and regulation. But we do think there's an opportunity on the proof of location with blockchain, and we're very excited about the project we're doing. 
um, with some of the former engineers of synthetics, and we're um, quite well progressed with that. And we think it's going to be game changing in our industry. We're very excited about it. Um, but the reason why they came to us is because they did make profits in crypto and they need to park it. You can't keep risking all your money, as I said. So you have to be able to park it somewhere. And gold is a really good place to do that. So that's why we are gathering a lot of interest from the crypto community, because someday, um, mm. you know, you've got to have that balanced portfolio. Mm. Yeah. But it, it is very different. They, they've, they've, Bitcoin has very much mimicked the scarcity, for sure. Um, but gold is a physical asset. You know, crypto is is not physical. Dogecoin, you can't point to me a Dogecoin. You can't use it. Uh, and uh, but but I think um, you know that that ability to have utility. Nobody spends nobody spends Bitcoin, right? Because you've heard we've all heard the story of the guy who who bought the pizza, and now that that you know that coin would have been worth you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? And he he spent a Bitcoin on pizza in the early days. Um, and so you you would you would spend your you wouldn't spend your cleanest dirty shirt right you 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 if I had held Bitcoin in gold which one would I spend first right mm. so the gold I guess well oh sorry yes depends yeah depends, yeah. <laughs> depends where you are in the market yeah yeah I was thinking um, you know you said you wouldn't you wouldn't spend you wouldn't transact your uh, your Bitcoin. Um, okay, so I've got a couple more questions for you, which is um, how do you teach your kids about money? First of all, they all need to be entrepreneurs, right? So my father, who spent 36 years in the same company, that doesn't happen anymore. Those days are gone. So the number one thing is that no one, you know, I've taught, um, I guess I've taught my son, you can't wait for someone else to give you a job. Go create value in the world, right? And 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 do so where at the end of the day, um, when you're at the finish line, you look back and you're proud of what you've done. Mm-hmm. Um, you can stand up and look at that and say, you know, yes, I added value to the globe. You know, speaking of balance sheets, right? Be an asset, not a liability. So, so I'm always pushing him to be on the asset side. Uh, so I think being an entrepreneur, he's he's got a couple businesses already. He's 12, you know. So I think that's really important um, to teach that resourcefulness and curiosity of the world and problem solving. And I think with those skills that will go, you know, be, be applicable to everything else that's in his portfolio when he when he has a proper portfolio. He owns gold for sure. Um, and, uh, but I think it's, it's just about teaching him to budget and, um, you know, the, the time value of money and, and um, not to not trust the financial system for sure, but be, Always be able to question, question the system mm. at any given time. Mm. Yeah, I love that line about uh, being an asset and not a liability. Yeah, that's that's really profound. Once uh, it sounds like he's already wrapped his head around that, but uh, once kids can wrap their head around that, even adults, it's a uh, it's a different it's a different ball game. Um, okay, so I've got one final question, and I'll have links in the show notes to everything rush related, so people will be able to find everything. Um, I know there's a lot of exciting developments and we might even have you back on the show in time to talk about those. But um, my final question is what's one thing about finance? It could be business. It could be life. It could be like investing, whatever. What's one thing that you believe that few people would agree with you on? Oi, oi, oi. 
Um, like I mentioned, you know, wisdom of crowds before. I, I, I think people forget to think for themselves. I think, um, you know, when I was active as an angel investor, I used to get asked all the time to join deals and I would ask, where's the due diligence package or where's the deal room or where's the summary that someone else did? And, oh, there's 50 of us coming into this deal. Just jump in. We need a couple more. Um, but they were doing it because their mates were doing it. Mm-hmm. I, um, I think people follow the crowd a lot and I think, you know, AI scares me because I think fake the ability to create fake news moving forward and move markets en masse, I think is horrifying. And so I think people have to continue to think for themselves and um, get their knowledge from good good places now. But having said that, I wouldn't stand alone in, in saying that. I'm sure there's many other people who feel that way. So I'm not quite sure um, if there's anything that I would really – be up against the the crowds on, but I think um, I just get frustrated when people don't think for themselves. I, I, I think it's easy right. it's easy to take the the easy way out all the time in life, and I just I think just we all need to think for ourselves. I think this conversation is going to go down for me as something where um, it's important to stress test not just your own assumptions but others' assumptions as well. And it's something that I do in my everyday life is just focus on incentives, spend most of my time focused on incentives, whether it's of people, individuals, or organizations. And um, I don't think enough people are critical in a good way of yeah. the, the the things around them uh, and they just accept the status quo. Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, this has been really, really interesting to me, Jody. And if I just go back to the beginning of the conversation, tracing like your early journey and the pathway you took and how those influences have later shaped. So you're already entrepreneurial, how those influences have shaped what you've created today. Um, I can see that thread and it's really, really impressive. And so thank you for taking time to come across Sydney here and join me uh, in our meeting room makeshift studio today. I really appreciate your time. Great, Owen. It's been a great podcast. I've been listening to it for a while, so glad to be a part of it. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, I can help. Please contact me via the Rask website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.